0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I am so excited to have Camille Fournier on the show. She's the managing director and head of platform engineering for Two Sigma. She was the CTO at Rent the Runway. She was a VP at Goldman Sachs, among other roles. She also wrote the book on engineering management, The Manager's Path. And today, we get into management challenges at hypergrowth companies, how to build effective relationships, and who actually should get to make different decisions amongst a management team. And her perspective on how to manage a team during crisis, which I found to be so helpful right now in my job. So I hope you enjoy it. Great. Well, Camille, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So I'm really excited to dig into scaling and managing teams. But where I'd love to start is really with growth and scale. Um, Since I've joined Drift just over two years, we've gone from 80 people to over 360 people, which has been a pretty wild ride. So I'd love to hear from you kind of what are the traps and the pitfalls that you see that people fall into when they start to scale teams like that?
1: I mean, I think there's a lot of challenges with, with scaling teams like that. One of them is that often you don't have the right people on the ground to evaluate the new skills that you may need to really successfully operate at the larger scale. And so what you sometimes see happen is that you end up with like fairly weak leadership or like senior technical folks because you have evaluated sort of the people that you're either hiring outside or promoting really based on kind of an incomplete understanding of what success in those roles might look like. And that is definitely a pitfall, right? So I definitely have seen and and spoken to and, and interacted with a lot of companies where you sort of look particularly at kind of their like mid-level engineering managers and you, you wonder a little bit like, wow oh, these people just don't really seem to have the skills. And they don't even seem to know what they don't know. A lot of the pitfalls you see in companies that are like hyperscaling and growing a lot is like when you don't really know what you're looking for, you know, frankly, you sometimes fall back on things like, oh, this person worked for Google. So they must know what they're talking about. This person worked for this big company. They must know what they're talking about, which is like sometimes true and sometimes completely wrong, but it's hard to know if you don't know. I think one of the big challenges of that sort of hyperscale is getting really the right people into various types of leadership roles, whether they're technical leadership or people leadership or or what have you, that are going to be able to set you up for success in the future. I think that that tends to be like a, a huge challenge for companies. And that's where I think when you screw up, it really takes a long time to undo the damage.
0: Yeah, we definitely had a period of time where we were growing really quickly. And I think we just sort of battlefield promoted a bunch of people, especially on, our, on the engineering team, into management roles way early in their careers. And I think that was really challenging. You know, some took to it like fish to water and some, I think, had a much more of a challenge with it. But that was something that I definitely took away as a lesson which was maybe that was the only thing we could have done at the time but looking back that was probably pretty painful for us to go through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there is an argument for promoting from within as much as you can, right? Because you can preserve the culture of the company much better when you do that, right? So I think whereas the upside of hiring someone from a, from outside with more experience, maybe that they have more experience and they sort of know what they're doing a little better, the downside can certainly be Oh, well, they know what they're doing, but their culture is just completely different. Whereas we are scrappy and super customer focused and very collaborative or whatever, you know, they come from a culture that's like super technical focused and that's really all they care about. And they're not very collaborative. And so even though they know how to thrive and succeed in that kind of environment, what they're bringing to us actually isn't, isn't working or it's changing our, our culture in ways we don't like. And so I do think there are you know, advantages and disadvantages and challenges to um, either the battlefield promotion from within or hiring people with experience externally. And neither is a perfect solution.
0: What other pitfalls do you think companies fall into when they scale like this? I'm wondering if there's any kind of on the technical side of things. There's definitely things that we run into, but I'm not sure if what I've seen. The one example I've been a part of is something that you've seen kind of across different companies.
1: I mean, I think you see all kinds of things when you scale very rapidly on the technical side. When you're scaling rapidly, usually it's because there's so much to do, right? And so it's almost certain that the team is just super focusing on build, 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 new stuff, new stuff, new stuff, new stuff all the time. That's easy to do when you start out from scratch and brand new and green field. And unfortunately, maintaining the ability to add, add, add over time becomes increasingly difficult just naturally, right? The longer you go, unless you take good time to take a step back and say, okay, what do we need to refactor or rework or change about this to make it more sustainable? And a lot of times when you're when you're just so far behind on known new things that you want to build, you kind of neglect that side of things. A lot of people, when they rapidly scale from a technical perspective, choose to apply different kinds of like architectural techniques or just like sort of decision-making techniques that mean that you don't have a ton of coordination on the engineering team, right? So a heterogeneous microservices, everybody just build what you want and we're just going to connect it on the network and you can do it in whatever language and whatever framework with whatever technologies you want to use. We don't care. Just like get your project done. That is sometimes the easiest way to just onboard lots and lots of people and just give them stuff to do. It tends to create like a hugely painful mess to operate for the long term, like actually sustain. And so I think that's the kind of in the modern era, like that's definitely the kind of problem that you see a lot where you just see this like massive explosion of this person had a problem and they just solved it in this little way that made sense to them because they're an expert in this language, nobody else in the company even knows it. Guess what? 18 months later, they decide they want to go do something else. And now you've got this unknown piece of work somewhere in the stack. And I think that's a really common problem that you see at modern hyperscaling companies on the technical side.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, from the product side, seeing that how and when you can see that show up. I think it's definitely something that maybe depending on your relationship with your technical counterparts, someone in my position might not see that happening. But then a transition that I thought was really interesting at Drift was when we went from building the first version, like you were saying, of many, many different things and then figuring out, okay, this is really where our product market fit is. These are the problems we like to solve best. Let's focus in on those and make what we've done better. And then when we were going back in just... Peeling apart all of the choices we had made kind of quickly to get those things out the door. And then having to understand the impact of those on our timelines and what we were doing and the choices we could make was much more complicated than I expected it to be.
1: And it's really hard. And like, you're never going to get it perfectly right in any kind of environment, right? So there's always going to be some before decisions, some need to redo things, some whatever. But I think you make a lot more of those like split second decisions when you're just trying to move as fast as possible. And I think more of them tend to end up on the wrong side of the coin flip because you're just making so many more of them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So you also pretty much wrote the book for tech leaders on managing. And I'm, I'm curious how you think about going back to this question of like working together across the different functions, how you think about manager relationships between design and product and like the role that those play and how how have you sort of talked to your team about building those relationships?
1: Yeah, manager relationships between engineering design and product, you mean?
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, obviously, like you need to have strong collaborative relationships between the various leaders and decision makers in different areas. If you want to have a functional organization. And different companies approach this different ways, right? There are definitely companies where one of those three is, in fact, the decision maker for most things, and all of those people report into that person. But I prefer, and I think, many companies these days, all of those functions are separated out. So that means that you really are explicitly in a peer-based relationship, right? It's no longer like, oh, product reports to engineering and therefore engineering is making all the decisions. They're the final decider, right? It's like, no, actually like, well, there may be some up the chain final decider and it may not be until you get to the CEO that you get to someone who really has sort of like the senior authority over all of the people in this conversation. You want to figure out how you can get to a functional collaborative relationship between the groups that doesn't assume that one has primacy over the other in all things. Now, I think one of the important things that people have to do is remember the parts of their job that they really should have primacy over, right? So product should really not be telling engineering how to write code or how to architect systems. Um, and sometimes they do. I have you know, I actually manage a very technical platform team and I have product managers. And occasionally product managers on the very, very technical infrastructure side sometimes want to get a little more in the details of the actual implementation than they really should be. I'm mean, going to have to remind them, like, look, that's really not your job, right? It is the job of the tech lead or the engineering managers to make the final call on what the technical architecture of this should look like. On the other hand, your final call is on what are the user-facing product features that we're building? What are the really requirements for this product to be successful or not? And understanding where each has the primacy of decision-making and where each can have an opinion. You don't want to squash opinions across the group. Great engineering leaders are going to have product opinions, especially at a startup, right? Where like hopefully everyone is there because they care about the product that you're building. But engineering leaders particularly have to remember that it is the product manager's job to figure out what the right thing to build is. And while they can and should bring ideas to the table and, and have opinions about the product, it's really not their job to fight the product manager on every product decision they make in the same way that it's not the product manager's job to fight the engineering team on every technical decision that they make. And of course, on the design side, right, I think design often is in sometimes in the hardest position I think design is such a specialty area that I think it's very hard for people who have never done it to appreciate it. I do think there are both some engineers and some product managers who think that they know how to do design. They don't, but they think they do <laughs> yep. because they've, hey, I made this website and it looks pretty nice, so therefore I know <laughs> yeah. something about design. And design, since it's so visual, often invites amateur commentary, kind of in the same way like marketing often invites amateur commentary, right? I, I sort of always feel for my, my marketing peers out there who have to listen to the peanut gallery on every decision they make because, of course, like everybody knows more about branding than they do. Yeah. Everyone's seen a website, so. Right. You know, everyone's seen a website. Everyone's used a Mac and they're like, oh, well, you know, why can't you just make this more like the way Apple would do it or whatever, right? So, so you know, we all have our crosses to bear a little bit. But I think on the design side, the collaboration there absolutely has to be that engineering, I think, tends to do a very poor job of spending enough time with design to really appreciate and sort of build trust with them. That when engineering pushes back on something that design wants to do, saying that it's too complicated to build, because sometimes it really is, engineering actually has to spend a lot of time with design building trust So, that they have the ability to do that and not have this feeling from the design side of the house that, like, oh, they're just being lazy or they're just like, they just really don't want to do this thing because it'll be a little bit of extra work. There is a need to build a lot of trust there. And I think actually, a lot of times that has to come from the engineering side reaching out. Now, on the flip side, like, then at some point, the design team needs to realize that, in fact, sometimes what you're asking for is, in fact, really kind of impossible to build in a reasonable time frame and how can you compromise with engineering to make something great so this always has to be you have to have good trust across that group they have to view themselves as almost like a first team where they are their primary teammates and not the people who report to them necessarily each has their role to play and each has the thing that they should be the decision maker on but none of them is the decision maker on everything
0: yeah. It's interesting. You reminded me of a conversation actually I had yesterday with some products and design folks at Drift about this concept of that's really hard. So being in a conversation with an engineering leader and having that person say, this is just really hard. Why don't we do this other thing? And whether this concept of hardness was like a negative. And we had this weird reaction where some of us were like, well, yeah, that's fine. That's okay. Like hard stuff is fine. The engineering team kind of anchoring on like not wanting to do things that were going to take too long. I'm curious if you've run into that as well.
1: The challenge there is to be precise about what that means, right? So it's like, well, that's really hard is not a very precise thing to say. What you're really trying to say is like, look, this thing that you've asked me to do, we may not even be able to figure out how to do it, maybe, or maybe we can figure out how to do it. It's going to mean that this feature goes from something we can implement in a week to something that will take us 6 weeks and may still not look like what you want. And then it has to be like everything we do is cost benefit and risk trade off. That is like at the end of the day, when it all boils down to it, if you are in a leadership and decision making position, all you are doing is deciding is something worth it or not? Is the risk worth it? Is the timeline worth it? Is the work worth it or not? And you're absolutely right. Like sometimes it totally is worth it, right? Sometimes it's like, yeah, like it's really hard to do a rebranding exercise. It's a real pain, right? On the other hand, if you work for a company that is really sort of consumer focused and particularly on any kind of fashion end or high end retail end, sometimes you got to do that even though it's always hard and it's always kind of painful because keeping the brand refreshed is important for this consumer mentality around using that product. I think for a lot of engineers, it's like, I can't believe it's ever worth the whatever six months plus of work that it takes to do a rebranding exercise for for this kind of thing. But the answer is truly that like actually it probably is. But that's also a call for someone in the senior leadership team to make whether or not it's worth that. And so this is really hard isn't isn't a precise enough statement to really make a decision based on, right? It, it has to be more like, look, this is hard. We have no idea how to do this. That's one description of hard that then it's like, okay, do you want to just like burn some period of time where the team is just going to figure out if they can do it at all? Those are days you are never going to get back, right? Because they're going to figure out if they can do it at all. And then they're going to come back to you and they may come back to you and say, we can do this and it will take us six months. And you may say, oh, you know what? Like, this is just really not worth that. So it's all about there is always a fixed time budget that we are all working on. Right. Every second of the day is ticking away and we're never going to get it back. So I think it's very important to be precise about what this is really hard means. But to appreciate that, like, yes, there are some hard things we absolutely should do. But there are some things where like actually the cost of that is just not worth it in terms of time, effort and energy implementing and then cost of maintenance. Right. The other thing about this is hard. Sometimes the message that you're getting is also not only is it hard to do, but supporting this over time as we continue to make changes to part of the site or part of the app or whatever, particularly from what you're talking about from a design perspective, every single time we make a change here, it's going to be that much harder to make a change because of the complexity that we're going to have to add to implement this thing. And so you're not only paying an upfront cost to implement the feature, you are paying a heavy ongoing cost. Are you sure you want that?
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of it for me comes down to it might be on product to make that choice or make the informed trade-off that you're talking about. But I also think it's it's on me as a product person to articulate why I think that the trade-off I'm making is the right one in a way that can like bring the other teammates along. So yes, each role, like you were saying, definitely has their the thing that they have the right to make the decision on. But then I think to build those bonds of trust, I always try really hard to explain my decisions so that like I'm never going off and around being like, nope, I made my decision, like no questions. It's like I need to make sure that they understand why I'm doing what I'm doing because A, they might have good feedback for me, but then B, I'm building trust by sharing my thought process. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. So I have another question that's sort of unrelated but is more topical in terms of the date and time these days, but I'm curious how do you think about managing in a crisis? And when there's a high amount of uncertainty in the market, how do you think about that as a manager of managers and a leader? And how do you coach your team on that?
1: It's hard. And I'm not sure I have like a one-size-fits-all answer to this. So I think there are like so many different ways that a crisis can impact you personally, your team personally, your company and therefore, I think different things that you may you may need to do as a result of that crisis, right? So obviously in a crisis, the crisis we're going through today is like no crisis that I have ever lived through in my career in any significant way, right? Like there has never been a crisis that has meant a significant threat to the life of my employees and their families like the current crisis. And I think that is such a different thing than crises like oh crap like we really need to get this feature out the door to boost sales so that we can raise funds or else we're going to have to do layoffs which is a different kind of crisis sort of requires a different kind of communication or or the crisis hey you know what like the markets have tanked the economy is terrible and We don't know whether the company can survive. And unfortunately, this current crisis is bringing out a lot of those crises for a lot of us. I do think that remembering that the primary crisis really is one of health and really is a life and death kind of crisis is important, I think, for leaders right now to remember that. As much as also we might be stressed out about whether our companies are going to survive and whether we're going to be able to get through this without layoffs or whether we're going to be able to pay people well or whether their stock options are going to become worthless or whatever, right? All of those things that we could be worrying about. The primary concern is actually for the health and well-being of our team and their loved ones and their friends and, and all of that. And people are dying. And look, I'm in New York City, so it's very top of mind for us here, right? Where we all know people who have gotten sick. We all know people who have had family members who have died. I fortunately, knock on wood so far, have not had anyone on my team get terribly sick, but I am in I'm in groups in New York where they've had employees die and it's terrible. It's hard to think about anything else when you realize that that is truly the situation we're in right now. So I think that the primary thing that every leader right now in this crisis should be doing is grounding themselves in this is bigger than money and this is bigger than productivity and this is bigger than all of those things. And those things are important. Don't get me wrong. Like people being able to make their rent and buy food and pay for all the things they need to pay for is also incredibly incredibly important and stressful and and has if not a top level life or death threat, like it's definitely like a secondary existential threat, but the primary threat of like, are people healthy and sort of physically safe is so important to, to ground yourself in and to be checking in on and to be kind of just mindful of and relating to. So you want to be making decisions and communication that respects that and sort of echoes that primary concern for the well-being
0: of your people. What's interesting, though, is I think that it's a level of personal care for the situation of the people on your team that might not be normal for a lot of people. I've seen managers and leaders kind of have to sort of step into the personal realm a little bit more than maybe they're comfortable doing, just because, like you're saying, it's such a different type of situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's awkward. And like, there are a lot of there are a lot of em- employees and people that like don't really like to talk about their personal lives and don't like having to open up in that way. You're going to have managers who are sort of pushing for that. And so I think as a leader, you have to tread carefully. You want people to know that you care. You do want to hear from people, right? Like someone was telling me the other day, like they freaked out and had to get HR running around to find emergency contacts for someone who missed a meeting. Turns out like the person just had a had a migraine or something and like wanted to sleep in and they're fine. But like we're kind of at extreme high alert again, especially given that I'm in New York City where a lot of people are getting sick and are dying here. As much as as leaders, we are trying to do the right thing for anyone who's listening to this who's not in a leadership position or in maybe a more junior leadership position. Remember that like you have the ability also to freak out your own leadership a little bit. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we all have a little bit of a role to play in kind of coming together now. Once you get past sort of that existential stress and look like I can't tell anyone how long is this thing going to go on for and when are we going to have a vaccine? It's like, I, I can't say anything about that. I have no idea. We're all just guessing. Anyone who claims to know is full of shit, right? <laughs> yep. So then there's the next level of, okay, Am I going to get laid off? Is this company doing okay? Are you going to fire me if I'm not productive because I have to take care of my kids all day because school's out and we don't have any other help or whatever, right? So, then as a leader in that kind of crisis, I think you do want to do your best to give people as much information as is appropriate to help them understand how well the company is doing how safe their jobs may or may not be. I think it is like reasonable and appropriate to be, you can't be perfectly transparent. Like it is just, it it is not, it is not okay. It's probably not even really appropriate to expose your entire staff to the decision-making process around if we do layoffs, who do we lay off? Now there was an interesting, like, Blog post just yesterday by the CEO of Carta who talked about how they did layoffs and and it was actually like pretty good like there, there was there was a lot of good things about it. I do applaud his transparency in that. And I would say like if you if your leader if your CEO is willing and able to provide that level of transparency to your team, that's wonderful. If they aren't, as a manager who is not a CEO, you should be very careful about being sort of appropriate with what you personally provide. Because I think that, let's say that you're having to do layoffs and the ultimate way that you are deciding to do layoffs is by performance. Like you're not doing layoffs because like positions are just being eliminated because you decided you didn't need to grow sales or whatever. Like you're literally just like, in engineering, the layoffs are entirely performance-based. I would be very careful and delicate about how I communicated that with my team because you are basically saying all those people that you used to work with that you're no longer working with weren't doing very well. And like the truth of the matter is they may have been doing fine. It's like look you had to you had to make a call and they didn't make it. But they're still good engineers, they're still good people like so I think I think you want to be you want to be careful about you do want to give people information and some transparency, right? Like as much as you can, here's the state of the business, right? I work in finance, right? So like the markets have been crazy. Like how does that impacting our business? I get some degree of like talking points from very senior leadership. And then I translate those in a way that I think will make sense to my people, but I don't pretend to answer questions that I can't answer that I don't know. So the other thing is you don't want to commit to things that you can't possibly answer, right? Like we're fine now, but we might do layoffs in six months. You definitely don't want to put yourself in the in the situation of saying we will never do layoffs only to have to turn around and do them six months later. Right. So if you can't predict the future, if you aren't personally able to pay the salaries of your entire staff for the next 12 months, don't tell people you're never going to do layoffs because you may very well be doing them. And nothing is worse, I think, from a leadership perspective than going back on your word.
0: Yeah, and I think I hear the point that like you want to offer as much information as you can to help people kind of make decisions and feel comfortable and in control as much as they can of what's going on in their lives, but then without sort of going too far and offering sort of a false a false sense of security that you can't back up.
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't know, like leading through crisis when it's like we've got to get this thing out the door for a major marketing event that we're going to fundraise on, that's going to kind of like can make or break this company a little bit mm-hmm. can almost be fun. Yeah. And I've led through crises like that where like it's very stressful, but like firefighting, right? The When you're in tech and like you're having a major operational outage and the whole team comes together to figure out how to fix it. Like those kinds of things can be fun. Like at my company, there was a little bit of a firefight for preparing certain kinds of roles to be able to work from home, right? That many, most of us could work from home pretty easily, but certain roles required really specialized equipment or whatever. And like, okay, like the team that had to work on that, they had to come together and like figure out really quickly, like how are we going to turn around and make a setup for these folks so that they can still do their jobs from home and they don't have to come into the office. Because like, I'm sure we could have locked it down such that they could have still come into the office, but we'd have been putting them at risk and our company didn't want to do any of that. Right. So, okay. How are we going to make it so that these people can work from home? Those are kind of exciting and bonding crises. And your role is much more of a cheerleader role of a, like, we can do this team. Like you got this. And then your role is sort of a little bit one of like, all right, like we did it. Like Good job. Let's celebrate. Take a little time for yourself. That's sort of like a fun leading through crisis kind of role. It can be stressful at the time, but like it, it, there's a lot of reward that comes out of that. Right now, we are just in a marathon. Yeah, <laughs> It just kind of sucks. And it sucks for all of us, right? We're all stuck working from home, which I'm sure there are people out there who who love it. I hate it personally. <laughs> I really like seeing people in person. My whole job is talking to people all day And doing it over video chat is exhausting, exhausting, and just it's not fun. Like, you know, my job is significantly less fun working from home than it is working from an office. And who knows when it's going to end. You have the stress of personal safety and everyone's health, your own health. You have the stress of being in a new situation. You have the stress of uncertainty of the health of the company, because every company is going to have some uncertainty right now, right? There's, I don't think anyone's getting away unscathed from The economic situation that we're in right now. And then you have the stress of not knowing when it's going to end. And I think as a leader, the best thing you can do right now, check in on people, be as a human, humane, and stabilizing person as you can, right? Just just try to be there. I write like a weekly newsletter to my team and I just try to keep it light. I try to keep it light, but genuine. Last time I posted photos of very hilariously bad cake that i made with my son and gave a little bit of a business update and reminded folks that it's a good idea to take time off during this time occasionally because like yes you can't go anywhere but like still having to work is still work taking time off to play video games or whatever is not a bad idea so you want to keep in touch you want to be there you want to be kind of a rock for your team as much as you can you don't want to be too serious at the same time, right? You wanna be serious enough. You're taking this seriously. You don't wanna be the person who's freaking everyone out by taking it so seriously that they are even more worried than they already are.
0: Yeah. I find myself making we, we have a video product and I've been making videos and gifts and just generally making a fool of myself just to kind of lighten lighten the load for people because I think it can it can kind of accumulate in a way that can be really stressful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Camille, thank you so much. This has been an awesome discussion. I just have one last question for you. I'm curious if you are listening to anything or reading anything that you're really enjoying or you're finding inspiring right now.
1: Oh, well, I'm reading the latest of the Thomas Cromwell series. I don't know if Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel wrote them. So I'm reading the the last one, which has like the benefit, at least for me, Of like, I both enjoy the books very much. I think they're like, I think she's just a brilliant writer. It takes a little Mm -hmm. while to get into, but like, what a brilliant writer. But they're also just dense enough that after a few pages, I always fall asleep, (laughs) which is good. So it's actually like the perfect thing for me to be reading right now, because it helps me like, it's what I do. I always read right before I go to bed. And so it really helps me like, unwind and take my mind off of the the stress of the world. So I don't know about inspiring, but I'm certainly enjoying that. I've been meditating regularly for about five years, and that is certainly a practice that I'm grateful for in times like this. I use Insight Timer, which I've been using for years because mostly I just want a timer with nothing else. But sometimes I listen to, they have a huge library of guided meditations and talks. I'm a big fan of Tara Brock, who is a meditation teacher who puts all of her things online and has for a very long time. She's in the DC area, so I've only seen her in person like twice. But I find that like in times of like extreme stress, sometimes what you need is grounding in sort of approaches to mindfulness and that can be important for some people and right different people have different ways of of approaching that but for me i find just a, a grounding and reminding myself to be aware of my own emotions but also to open up and be very compassionate to the wider world i think is really important to not shut yourself off from compassion for your fellow human being right now. I think that's very important as well. So those are some of the things I'm doing to, I don't know about keeping
0: inspired, but sort of keep me keep me from going nuts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I actually today hit 365 days of meditation. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm super on that same path, which I think has been a huge benefit to my life in the last year. But anyway, Camille, we're out of time. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and thanks again. Yes. Thank you for having me.